Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. We come now into a new section this morning, verses 20 through 28. Now, it was my original intention this morning to cover this entire section, all eight verses. However, I later realized that it would be better to break it up into two messages. One reason, the passage easily divides into two sections. But another reason is because we simply would have had to skip over too much that I did not feel comfortable doing that with. So this morning we're going to consider verses 20 through 23. Verses 20 through 23. Now the main idea in our passage overall is this. That self-sacrificing love grounded in Christ's atoning death is the only path to greatness in God's kingdom. That self-sacrificing love grounded in Christ's atoning death is the only path to greatness in God's kingdom. And that stands in striking contrast to the world, which sees greatness in terms of personal glory, in terms of personal ambition, and in terms of personal success. And life in the kingdom is a shocking reversal of that. And we would expect, when we look at a fallen world, to see that kind of vanity. We would expect to see that kind of pursuit of self-interest. We would expect to see that kind of selfish ambition. But it's doubly sad when we see it among God's people, among God's redeemed, and among those who name His name. And unfortunately, that has too often been the case. You'll remember, although it's in many places... Uh, Not long ago in our reading through the Bible, Miriam and Aaron uh, themselves who were jealous of the, the superior ministry of Moses and God had to discipline them and Miriam in particularly by giving her leprosy for a period of time and making her stay outside of the camp. But that kind of jealousy, that kind of vying for position, that kind of selfish ambition is unfortunately in the heart of man and still resides in the heart of God's people too often. But the true mark of a servant of Christ and of greatness in the kingdom has always been, not pride, but humility. Humility. A life captured by the grace of God in Christ and marked by a singular devotion to Him. The inner cry of the heart for the one who has been redeemed by Christ and for the one who knows Him is reflected in the words of the psalmist. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My heart and my flesh might fail, may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. Psalm 73. And this is where Jesus is going to take his disciples and where he's going to take us this morning. As we see his gentle corrective to their self-seeking pride. Read with me. We'll read the entire passage, all eight verses. Verses 20 through 28. And then we'll circle back around to verse 20. Then, then of course being after Jesus has just predicted his coming suffering. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, 
We are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the brothers, the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It's not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Look back up at verse 20. And let's notice this morning a gentle corrective to the subtle, the subtle pride of self-seeking glory. And let's note first that it begins with a wrong view of the kingdom. Now Matthew doesn't tell us how long after the prediction of verses 17 through 19 this scene takes place. But it would seem that it is a relatively short amount of time as he simply introduces it with then. Then, after those events, after those things took place, which we just looked at before. And in either case, however long the time was, he's placing these two accounts right next to each other to clearly show us that there is a contrast between the attitude of the disciples and the picture of the kingdom that Jesus is laying before them. Jesus is talking about coming death and coming suffering, and here are these disciples seeking their own vain interest. And even more... He's showing the contrast between the reality of the kingdom that Jesus, again, has been constantly laying before them and that only victory mindset that they are tenaciously holding on to. In fact, in spite of everything Jesus has been teaching them, they still think of the kingdom only or at least primarily in terms of God establishing His glory and the glory of Israel on earth here and now. Now we repeat that often because that is very important to understand to get behind their thinking and know why they say what they say, why the people act the way that they act and are going to do the things that they do, particularly in the events that are quickly coming upon them. Now the prophets, as we know, did anticipate a kingdom of glory. They did anticipate a reign of the Messiah that would be worldwide, that would be centered out of Jerusalem, where he would reign on the earth. Psalm 2 anticipated a time when he would shatter the kings of rebellion in rebellion to him with a rod of iron. When everybody who does not honor the Son will pay the price for not honoring the Son. The prophets looked forward to a glorious time in a regenerated earth where things would be renewed, where the law would be obeyed, where Christ would be honored, honored, where everything would be as it should be. The prophets anticipated that kingdom. It's not wrong for them to have that kingdom in their mind. It wasn't totally wrong for them to think this way. The problem was that they did not allow, however, for the other aspects that the prophets anticipated, the part of the kingdom that involved suffering. The problem is they did not really listen to Jesus when he also laid that 
before them repeatedly. And this is somewhat understandable. 1 Peter 1.11 tells us that even the prophets, even those through whom God revealed his will, they didn't quite get it either. And they were always searching and asking and seeking from God to understand these things that he was revealing to them. It was understandably outside of the purview of their thinking. And to add to that, they had become convinced that Jesus was present with them as the Messiah, as the King of Israel. And the Spirit was manifested in an extraordinary way through His humanity while He was here on earth. And He did just speak to them of a glorious reign in which He will sit over a regenerated earth and they will be with Him judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And He has told us that we also will reign with Him. But the full experience of those things was yet to come. It wasn't here and now. First, Jesus is laying before them. There is suffering, there is struggle, there is difficulty. As he said in chapter 11, verse 12, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence for now. Now, they're struggling with what we would call today an overrealized eschatology. What do we mean by that? In other words, that overrealized eschatology thinking is thinking that wants to experience future realities of the kingdom, future promises of redemption here and now. In other words, before God actually brings them to bear on the earth and in their full glory. The reality is, too, that this was not simply a problem for first century Jews, but it is just as much a problem for many in the church today. Let me just note a couple. This idea of an overrealized eschatology is at the core of much of the wrong teaching of charismatic theology. For example, they want to teach that in the atonement of Christ, there is a physical healing that should be experienced here and now. We only need to receive it by faith. Therefore, there should be no more sickness. There should be no more disease. There should be no more pain in the life of a genuine believer. In fact, there is a healing in the atonement. There is primarily a spiritual healing in the atonement. And there is also a physical healing in the atonement because of the removal of sin. But the reality is that's not fully realized now. It won't be fully realized until the resurrection. Christians still get cancer. Christians still get sick, they still get disease, and most importantly, they still die. Christ conquered death in his resurrection, but there is not a Christian who has not died a physical death. Again, these are promises that are true, they are promises that are coming, but they will not be experienced by us until the resurrection, until we have resurrected bodies and are in the presence of the Lord forever. And there are many aspects of our salvation that we have the first fruits of now, but won't know until later the fullness that God has designed in them. The same error happens when we think of sanctification. Some say, look, God has made us holy in Christ and therefore we should not sin. And so they teach that we can be perfect in this life. And again, they want the blessings that will be realized in the future and they want to bring them into the here and now. The fact is we still sin. We still have bodies of sin. We still have the presence of sin in us. 
the day is coming and there's not a believer on this planet and in this room that doesn't long for the day when we will cease to sin, when the presence of sin will be forever removed and we'll give Christ the worship that our hearts long to give Him now, but they fail to do so often. That day is coming, but it's not yet. Right now we have sinful bodies, we struggle with the flesh, and until these bodies are laid in the grave and risen again, we are going to struggle until we're in His presence Now, Paul spoke of this when he says, we groan with all creation. We're waiting for the hope, the revealing of the sons of God on a new heaven and a new earth when we will know these realities. But for now, we struggle. And so here it is with the disciples. Their view of the kingdom is not that it's all wrong. It's not that those aren't really blessings that God has designed. It is that they want to bring them into a time and place that God has not designed them yet to be fully experienced. And that is the here and now. They must wait. They have to come to grips with the reality of the depth of their sin. And they haven't done that yet. They have not appreciated the fact that there must still be an atonement for sin. If you took their thinking, that could almost just be bypassed and they could just have glory. And Christ is saying that's not how it is. He needs to die. He needs to rise. He needs to gather a peaceable to himself. And then when he's finished with that work, the kingdom will be established. So they're oblivious to his teaching that suffering attends those who are in the kingdom in this present and fallen world. They're not humbled yet. And I note this first because if we have a wrong view of the kingdom and a wrong view of the atonement, we're going to have wrong pursuits in the kingdom and many fall into this trap, even, I'm sure, at times, some of us. Now look back at verse 20, that being said. And let's look at how this works out in their own life. He says in verse 20, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request from him. First, we noted they had a wrong view of the kingdom. Now there's a misdirected faith. Or you could say they are demonstrating a humility with subtle pride. Now the parallel account here in Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter 10, verse 35, says that it was actually James and John who approached to Jesus and spoke to him and asked him for this request that in Matthew is put on the lips of their mother. So some immediately want to say, ha! Historical error, right? There's a mistake that the writers have made, but that is both untrue and it's unnecessary. Just observe a few simple points with me here in Matthew. Notice that in verse 20, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons. So they were all three together. Notice also in verses 22 through 23, well you won't notice this, but Jesus is referring to them in the plural. In other words, he's not just speaking to his mother, but he's speaking primarily to James and John. And notice in verse 24 that the ten, the other ten disciples, became indignant not with his mother or their mother, but with James and John themselves. So why the two accounts? Simple fact, we run into this often as we go through the Gospels, that when you have two writers reporting the same events, that they bring out different parts of that event for their own emphasis. And when we put them together, we get a full picture of the scene. And so here it is that they all three come together in agreement to make this request of Jesus. And they most likely ask their mother to go first to kind of prime the pump. And then there they are right behind him asking the same request. 
trying to seek from him special position in the kingdom. Matthew mentions the mother just to emphasize the shamefulness of it, the absolute shamefulness of their behavior. And notice what she does when she comes. She comes with a posture of humility. She comes bowing down. And the term behind this phrase is usually and most often associated with an act of worship. An act of worship. It's a term used, for example, of the Magi who came and they fell down before the Christ child when they found him. So here she comes in a posture of worship to make a request. But sadly, though she's in a physical posture of worship, her heart is not in a true frame of worship. Her motives are all wrong. It looks good on the outside, but she's seeking the wrong goal. And this is a reminder to us that it's not the position of our bodies, the tone of our voice, or even the kind of words that we say when we come to the Lord in prayer, but it is the condition of our heart. We have to seek the Lord with the right motives. James said that we ask and we do not receive. Why? Because we ask with wrong motives that we might spend it on our pleasures. And that's precisely what is going on here. She's coming to the Lord. She's coming in a right position of worship, a right posture of worship. She's coming to Him with the right recognition of who He is, but she has the wrong heart. She has the wrong goal. It's primarily for self. And we would do well to examine our own prayer lives in the light of that. That we might learn to pray for what is right. And I'll tell you, if we don't, the Lord will humble us as He would these disciples until we learn to seek His interest and not our own. But that being said, her pride here does have an element of subtlety to it. It does have something that's quite subtle to it in this way. Though the request is wrong, she really is, however, as long with James and John, demonstrating an element of faith. She's demonstrating an element of faith. The fact is, they had followed Jesus. And the fact is, by the mere... Uh, reality that she's coming to him and they're coming to him they're recognizing that his kingdom will be established everything that he said is true he is the messiah he is the king of israel his kingdom is coming and they are recognizing that by coming to him and such with such a request and so that part is good they did believe the prophets they did believe Jesus. They did recognize his sovereignty. They did believe in his coming rule as messiah But they still, in light of all of that, had selfish ends and selfish goals. Calvin rightly said that this whole account is a bright mirror of human vanity. So let's notice then thirdly here their audacious request. An audacious request. So they come to him in verse 21. And he said to her, the mother, what do you wish? What do you wish? And this really is incredible kindness of Jesus. He may or may not have known what they were going to ask. Remember, he was the Son of God humbled in flesh. He knew only what the Spirit of God revealed to him. But in either way, he is a model of gentleness in how he speaks to them. What do you wish? And so, she lays it all on the line. She puts it all out there. She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. There it is. She wants to secure the highest places of honor for her two sons. The most exalted positions in the kingdom that is to come. Now this is egregious. It's actually quite egregious. She's not simply seeking 
for them and from Jesus to rule with him in his kingdom. As a matter of fact, Jesus has already said they're going to do that. He already said, you're going to sit on the glorious, or sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He's already promised them they're going to rule. That's not what she's seeking. What she's seeking is something even greater. I don't want to just rule, or I don't want my sons just to rule in your kingdom. I want the most exalted positions of rulership in your kingdom. The right and the left are side of the throne of the ruler are the two highest positions next to the king, the two most exalted positions. And notice here, because they are also demonstrating a certain measure of true faith, notice how easily that a right zeal for the kingdom and even in true faith that selfish ambition can come in and corrupt even the best of intentions that start out as the best of intentions. Now, in one sense, with the mother, it's an admirable demonstration of her love for the sons, right? She's not coming and asking this for herself. She's asking this for her sons. This is truly a mother's love. But outside of that, it's hard to find much admirable in what she asks. Now, I want to suggest to you, and I'll go through these rather quickly, six six elements that demonstrate the pride of her request. And as you listen to these, don't imagine just what's going on in this scene, but let me suggest that these are elements that are part of all of self-seeking ambition, all of self-seeking glory. They show up in some way and in some form. Notice first that she comes to him in deception. Deception. They go to him secretly or privately. This is hardly a model of integrity and honesty. It's like she's going up to Jesus to get to him first so that she can cut a deal behind closed doors. As a matter of fact, these two are already a part of Jesus' inner circle, and yet she's saying, hey, let's take that and just go even further and see if we can't get a greater position of honor, vying for an even more significant position. And you can imagine how Peter felt when he heard this. He certainly knew about this too, as we'll learn next week. He is, hey, aren't I Peter the Rock? Aren't I the one that is supposed to receive special glory? What are you guys trying to do to take what is mine? So they first go to him with deception. Secondly, they come with manipulation. Manipulation. And likely what's going on here is they're trying to manipulate family relations. You say, what do I mean by that? Well, in all likelihood, this mother is identified in... Mark and in Luke as the woman named Salome. She is at the cross with Jesus when he was crucified with other women. And John 19.25 identifies her as the sister of Jesus' mother. The sister of Jesus' mother making her Jesus' aunt, James and John, by descendant, physical descent, Jesus' cousins. And so in other words then, very likely what they're trying to do is use a family connection as a means of manipulation. Hey, let's get his aunt to ask him. Let's get our mom to go up there and see if we can't twist this situation in a way that will work to our advantage. And this identifies, beloved, the very, very subtle ways that we can manipulate people and situations for our own advantage, seemingly under the guise of humility and sincerity. We must be aware of that. Note thirdly, it's deception, manipulation, and hard-heartedness. As already been mentioned, they show no sensitivity to what Jesus has revealed. Jesus is talking about suffering, and they're seeking glory. How pathetic. 
Their hearts are totally hard to everything that Jesus has just told them about the kingdom. Why? Because they're consumed with their own goals. That's what self-seeking ambition is. They are preoccupied with themselves. Notice, fourthly, they have an inflated view of themselves. By coming to Jesus and asking this, they are assuming that they have everything that it takes to rule in the kingdom. They're thinking, hey, look, if anybody can rule, it might as well be us. We're as capable as anyone else. Total lack of humility. It shows self-promotion. Again, for their selfish ends. It isn't about serving Christ, but it's about gaining personal glory. Reminded of Jeremiah's words to the servant, don't seek great things for yourself. Lastly, it is self-assurance. It shows deception, manipulation, hard-heartedness, inflated view of self, self self-promotion, self-assurance. It shows no self-doubt, no humble concern about what this might require. No thought that, hey, maybe this is too much for me to seek for myself. That's why Jesus hasn't given it. Maybe this is too much for me to do on my own. But there's no kind of self-doubt. Let me tell you, self-doubt can be helpful when it leads us to the grace of Christ. And sadly, this kind of self-seeking glory is present in Christianity all over the place How many people parade themselves on the TV screen and across the internet and other places that are strutting about seeing ministry only as a means of self-advancement rather than service? This is a terrible, terrible sin. There's many places we can go. Let me just read to you one example of this. In Philippians, you're familiar with it. I'll read it to you to show you this can creep up in the most unlikely places. Paul, while in prison, says that some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. But the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Can you imagine that? Preachers of the gospel of Christ seeking to cause distress to the Apostle Paul out of their own selfish ambition, out of their own desire to be preeminent in the eyes of others, out of their own desire to receive glory that is not their own. This is precisely what's going on in the heart of James and John. And again, it shows how subtle it can be. This is the selfish ambition that's present in the case of Philippians and those who are actually preaching the right gospel who are actually preaching the right Christ, and yet their motives are all wrong. Their motives are all wrong. And this is the attitude and motive of every false teacher. And again, sadly, it can be that way in our own hearts. Now, in a sort of ironic twist, these two positions, the right side and the left side of Jesus, will be fulfilled, but in a way that they're not anticipating at this point. As a matter of fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke each record that it was fulfilled by the two thieves that were crucified next to him. They say this in Matthew 27, he says, And at that time two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And it's possible the writers were thinking of this very scene when making this note. In either case, it is a subtle reminder of what Jesus is going to lay before them and before us, that the path to glory is the path of the cross. Suffering is the path to greatness in the kingdom of God. They want to be great. You want to sit on my right and my left. You want honor in the kingdom. Then you need to display the same kind of self-denying love that I am. 
And so notice this gentle challenge that he gives to them in verse 22. He says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink, about to drink? And again here, this is the plural you, and I note that because it doesn't come across in English, but you have to understand, he's addressing not only the mother here, he's addressing all of them, and primarily, I think, only James and John. The mother kind of fades out of the scene at this point. It's really their own vying for position. And yet, this is such a gentle response by the Savior. He does not come down hard on them, though he is going to challenge them, and he is going to challenge their thinking, and he's going to challenge their assumptions. He says, you do not know what you are asking. You don't know. You're asking for something that is far beyond you of what you can even imagine at this point. You're making a great assumption and you're displaying your ignorance. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Now, he's obviously not speaking of a literal cup here. What is he saying? Essentially, it's a phrase that means this. Are you able to fully enter into the experience that I am about to undergo? In this case, are you able to take on the kind of suffering that I just told you that I myself am going to have to endure? Now, a cup was sometimes used positively. My cup overflows, for example, in Psalm 23. But most often, cup speaks of judgment It speaks of the judgment of God. Let me give you just one verse here to give you an idea of that. Isaiah 51, 17 says this. He says, rouse yourself, rouse yourself, arise, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger, the chalice of reeling, you have drained to the dregs. And that kind of language is throughout. It's in Revelation to drink the fierce wrath, the cup of the fierce wrath of the divine vengeance of God against the sinners on the earth. What is he speaking of here? Well, Jesus is going to use the same language in chapter 26, verse 39. You know it. In the garden, he said, as he was praying to the Father, anticipating the cross, he said... Or Matthew records, and he went a little bit beyond them, and he fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. What is the cup? Well, for Jesus, this cup is the divine wrath of justice against sin. It is that wrath that Isaiah spoke of, and Jesus is saying, That is the cup that I must drink. That is the cup that was anticipated for the Messiah in his suffering in Isaiah 53. And Jesus would drink it, and he would drink it down to the dregs. Now, in one sense, they could never drink that cup then, could they? They could never drink that cup in exactly the same way that Jesus did, because Jesus was bearing God's wrath for them. As he's going to say at the end, he was going to give his life as a ransom for many. They could not give their life as a ransom for many as Jesus could. However, in that cup, there's suffering, there's death, there's ridicule, there's insults, there's rejection, there's persecution for the kingdom. They can and they will drink that cup, although they're ignorant of what that actually means. They knew that in some way there was some suffering. They knew and had seen the rejection of Jesus by the leadership in the nation, but they had no idea the extent to which they would have to experience it. And so look at what they say. They said to him, we are able. We are able. 
This is an ignorant response of misplaced confidence. We are able? We are able? Wow. That's an incredible amount of self-confidence here. And it's the same kind of self-confidence that would end in their downfall. As this proverb said, before destruction comes a haughty spirit. Pride comes before destruction. Flip back over just briefly to Matthew 26. Just so we can look at this quickly. Matthew chapter 26, verse 33 through 35. Here they are with this proud self-confidence. It's the same kind of confidence that Peter was going to spearhead there at the night of the Last Supper when Jesus told him that he was going to deny him three times. And what does Peter say? He says in verse 33... Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. I am able to follow you, Jesus. I'm able to follow you wherever you go, even if it costs me my life. I fear nothing. I will follow you. And Jesus tells him that you're going to deny me. And it wasn't just Peter. Look down at verse 35. And all the disciples said the same thing too. They all said the same thing too. What happened? Flip back over to verse 69 of chapter Matthew 26. Peter was sitting outside. We know the story. We won't go through it. He denied him three times. The pressure came. He was confronted with his knowledge of Christ. And he let him down. He let him down. Showed how weak he was. What else happened? Well, look at verse 75. He went out and he wept bitterly. And later we learned that when they came and took him, or before that, in the garden, that all of the disciples left him and fled. They fled. Turn back to chapter 20. Here is this proud self-confidence. This proud idea that I have it in my own strength. I have it in my own ability, Jesus, to follow you wherever you will go. You can entrust me with the glory of the kingdom because I have what it takes. It's plain and simple. I have what it takes. And let me tell you, this is instructive to us, beloved, because their self-confidence was their weakness. It was their weakness. And this is precisely counter to the world's thinking, but the way that it is in the kingdom. It's this kind of self-confidence that weakens our ministry and it hinders our fruitfulness in the kingdom. And I suggest to you that it's much more rampant among us and in our own hearts than we would choose or like to think. I have counseled people many times who struggle over the fact that they fail because they're weak. They have a hard time dealing with the fact that they're weak and they're not as strong as they thought they are. And so when bad things happen or when they fail or they demonstrate spiritual weakness, they're utterly devastated because they say, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I did that. The fact is, they would be stronger if they realized how weak they were at the beginning. You get that? If they realized how weak they were, then they would have been stronger. If we would realize how absolutely weak we are, then we would have strength when adversity rises. Because we wouldn't be standing on our own strength, but we'd be standing on the strength of Christ. The counsel to them is, yes, you are weak. And you're even weaker than that. Embrace it and turn to Christ and trust in Him and not yourselves. The reason we so often fail and struggle is because we're doing things in our own strength. We're relying on our own ability and not His grace in us. So part of their statement is ignorance, but the other part is misplaced confidence. 
And we should be confident when we do things for the Lord, but it's confidence in His strength, not our own. How did Paul counsel Timothy? Be strong in what? The grace which is in Christ Jesus. Timothy was feeling cowardly. Timothy Timothy was timid about the persecution that was coming. And yet Timothy was given a charge to be an evangelist, to preach the word in season and out. And Paul's saying, Timothy, don't stand on your own strength. Stand on the strength of Christ. And you will be strong. You will be bold. And you will be courageous. And in fact, Timothy did learn that lesson. And he finished the race well, just like his mentor and father in the faith, the Apostle Paul. And let me tell you, just as with these disciples, if that's the kind of life that you live depending on your own strength, God is going to repeatedly let you fail and bring circumstances into your life that are going to humble you and show you who you really are. Not to be harsh, but to teach you to depend on Him. So strength begins with poverty of spirit. And God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. But that is certainly not what they are demonstrating here. Are you able to drink the cup I am about to drink? Yes, we are able. Of course they're not. So the first thing that Jesus exposes is the foolishness of self-seeking glory. The foolishness of selfish ambition that causes so much ruin and division within the church and in our own relationships and lives that dishonors Christ and causes so much spiritual weakness in the church. But notice Jesus' gentle corrective in verse 23. His gentle corrective. And He's correcting them and He's correcting us by affirming two things about true greatness here. Two things. First of all, that true greatness comes from a willingness to suffer. A willingness to suffer. Look at what He says. My cup you shall drink. And you can stop there. My cup you shall drink. Jesus affirms that they will suffer. You will suffer. You will drink a cup. Not in the same exact way, but you will suffer. You will suffer for following me. You will suffer for the kingdom. You will suffer for my name. You will know distress and you will know rejection and you will know pain and you will know sorrow. You will know all of these things as you follow me to the cross and as you take up your cross and follow me. You will know this. You're going to know the experience of death. You're going to know what it's like to be put under the sword because of your confession of my name. As a matter of fact, Acts 12, don't turn there. Let me mention it to you. Acts chapter 12, verse 2. It is James, the same James that's here before the Lord in Matthew 20, who's going to be one of the first Christian martyrs. Acts 2 tells us that tell tells us Acts 12 that Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them and in verse 2 and he had James the brother of John put to death with the sword. James would know the price. James would be put to death. He'd know what it means to give his life even unto death and to suffer. John would suffer. History tells us that John is the only one of the disciples that did not get martyred, that was not martyred. Although he was banished to the island of Patmos, we're familiar with, from which he wrote the book of Revelation. He would suffer, he would suffer too, he would know what it meant to lose all to follow Christ. However, this statement is not just for them. What does Paul say in 2 Timothy? Do you remember? All who desire to live godly in this present age will what? Will suffer, will suffer. All who desire to live 
godly in this present age in Christ Jesus will suffer. And he's already told us this. He's already said, look, if you're in the kingdom of God, then expect persecution. Expect ridicule. Expect to be maligned for my name. Expect these things to happen. Expect them to say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And he says, rejoice and be glad. For then your reward in heaven is what? Great. It's great. The path to greatness in the kingdom then is the path of suffering. The path of willingness to leave all behind to follow Christ. Who's going to be greater in the kingdom? Well, it'll be people like we hear on the news, right? Salid over in Iran, who was faithful to the gospel and is over there being tortured. We should pray for him and for all the others of our brethren who are being persecuted around the world. Those are the ones who are experiencing to any greater degree than any of us in this room what it means to drink the cup that Christ drank because of their faithfulness to Christ. And all of the other nameless Christians that are in prison and labor camps in North Korea that are all scattered throughout the world suffering in fear of their lives because of their faithfulness to Christ. That's what Jesus is talking about. Those are the ones whose feet we're going to sit at in the kingdom because of their suffering. Because they were willing to count all to follow Christ. Willing to count all to follow Christ. We won't turn there, but 1 Corinthians chapter 4 Peter, Paul has to address that same attitude. He says, oh, I wish that you were already kings and that I reigned with you. But I think that God has demonstrated us apostles last of all. We're the despised of the world. We're the dregs of society. We're last of all. We are the least thought of in the world. And yet in the kingdom, who was the greatest? They were. They were. And that theme runs throughout. Now why, let me just mention this, why does God choose suffering? Why suffering? Well, suffering, of course, was what Christ himself had to undergo to be our perfect substitute. Hebrews 5.8, he learned obedience through what? Through what he suffered, and he suffered it to the uttermost. And his obedience to Christ in the midst of suffering enabled him to be the perfect sacrifice. He was tested as much as a human being can be tested, and he was found to be pure and holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and a just substitute for us. But why else? Why else is there suffering? One is to teach us obedience and to perfect our obedience. The other is because suffering like nothing else, beloved, rids us of self-confidence. It destroys our self-confidence. It humbles us. It's very easy for us to be proud and confident in our strength until suffering comes along and then we're wiped out on the floor. We're totally decimated. We realize we have no strength in ourselves. We have nowhere else to turn except to Christ. Paul said the same thing in 1 Corinthians. He said, I feared even of my life. Why? So that I would learn to do what? You know it. Not to trust in myself, but trust in him who gives life, who raises the dead back to life. That's the one. And so Paul brought, God brought me all the way to the end of myself. And he has to do that always in his children. So if you're experiencing suffering... If you're experiencing difficulties and trials, don't run away from it. Say, God, how are you trying to strip me of myself? How are you in this trial trying to rid me of my self-confidence, trying to rid me of desires that I have that are not honoring to you, try to rid me of the things of this world? Embrace it. That's the path to greatness. 
Take on the humility. Let God humble you. Don't fight it because God's going to win in the end anyway. Right? He's stronger than you are. He's stronger than I am. And he's not doing it, though, as a display simply of his strength. It's because he's a father who loves his children. And so he scourges every son whom he loves. Why? That they might share in his holiness. That they might share in the experience of the peace of righteousness. And so here it is with them. He's saying, yeah, there is going to be a cup to drink, and you are going to drink it. You will have a place in my kingdom, but it's not going to be an easy path. It's going to be one that involves suffering. Let's notice lastly here the second way that there's greatness. One is be willing to walk in suffering for the kingdom of God. The second is walk in humble submission to God's sovereignty. And this is glorious. But look at the end of verse 23. He says, My cup you shall drink, but to sit at my right hand and my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And this is really an incredible statement. It's really quite a striking statement, and it's even a rather surprising statement. Look at what he says. This is not mine to give. It's not mine to give. Does that surprise you? should a little bit. Isn't this the one who has already revealed himself as being the final judge that all men will stand before in his kingdom? Isn't he the one whom he just said that all judgment, or he said in John 5, all judgment has been given into his hands. He gives judgment and he gives life because he received that command from the Father. Isn't this the one whom he just told them is going to return in the glory of his father with the holy angels and establish his kingdom here on earth and hold everybody accountable for their deeds? Isn't he the one whom they will say he will say will sit on his glorious throne when he returns? Isn't he the one who says he's going to send out his angels and remove all stumbling blocks from his kingdom when he returns? It's his kingdom. There's no doubt about it. It is the kingdom of Christ. He is the king in that kingdom. He made this confession before Pilate in John 18 several times. He told him, look, this is my kingdom. This is my kingdom. He says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting for me. And I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. It is my kingdom. I am a king, just as you said. But it is a kingdom that is coming. It's not a kingdom that is here yet. So it is his kingdom. It is his kingdom. It is his that is going, he that is going to receive the glory from his people. But the fact is, it's not his to give, he says. It's not his to give. Why? Because it is the Father's to give. It is the Father's to give, but whom it has been prepared by my Father. And beloved, this is a reminder of Jesus' perfect obedience to the Father as the Son in the flesh by the power of the Spirit. In fact, every part of Jesus' life is a demonstration of His loving obedience to the Father. And every part of His life is a demonstration of the Father's lavish love to the Son. This is a statement of Jesus' humble submission to the will of God. And let me tell you, this is not just a statement about his humiliation in his humanity, in his incarnation. He'll make other statements like that in chapter 24. He doesn't know the time or the hour when it's going to come. He knows now. He didn't know then. God had kept that from him in his humanity. But this isn't speaking about that kind of humiliation alone. 
This is speaking of his humiliation or his obedience, not his humiliation, but his obedience to the Father always as the Son, equal in power and glory, and yet submitted to him as the Son. It is the Son's kingdom, but listen to this. It is a kingdom that is given to him by the Father. It's ultimately the Father who is over the kingdom, and it is the Father's prerogative to give it to whom he wishes. This is why Jesus says, that's not mine to give. It's not mine to give. I'm perfectly submitted to the Father, and it's his kingdom, and it is he that gives this position of honor and glory. Again, it is a kingdom that he has received. And let me note this, and I'm going to do it briefly. But this is sometimes a forgotten aspect about the Trinitarian relationships in redemption. It is the Father who gave the kingdom. We won't turn there. Daniel 7, 14. The Son of Man is presented before the Father where he what? Receives a kingdom and a dominion that all of the peoples of the earth might honor him and might praise him. It is the Father himself who is going to bring all things into subjection to the Son. The Father is going to do that. Let me just read to you one one verse here in Ephesians chapter 1. He says this, and listen to this, listen. After he's already told about the glorious things that the Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has done for his people. He's blessed them with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then he says this, and just listen, I'm only going to read it. He says, For this reason I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, and he doesn't cease giving thanks to them, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints." And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe that is the Father? And in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ, when he, the Father, raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, the Father's right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he, the Father, put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him, Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It is the Father's plan worked out to the glory of the Son. It is the Son's kingdom, but it is a kingdom he has received from the Father. And he is obedient to the Father in it. And at the end of it all, he's going to offer it all back up to the Father anyway. Let me read to you one more Verse, a glorious verse that we have to read far too quickly, but listen. Then comes the end. Paul's speaking here about the resurrection. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. He has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him, that is the Father. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. 
It's a kingdom that he's received from the Father. It's not his to give. It is the Father's to give. Why? Because it is the Father's kingdom. The Son receives it. And the Son is Lord in that kingdom. And he is king in that kingdom. And he receives glory in that kingdom in line with the will of the Father. Now in heaven, after he offers up this kingdom back to the Father, he will be on the throne with the Father and be the light and the glory and the delight of His people forever in the Spirit, receiving worship and service from His saints, Revelation 22, 1. But the point here is just this. This is why I mentioned that. I'll say this quickly. That Jesus is displaying His own humility and obedience to the Father, and that stands in striking contrast to the disciples. Jesus is saying, look, I don't even appoint people to sit on my right and left, and here you are, these proud disciples who are coming up and asking for something that I myself am submitted to the Father in. And it shows a stark contrast of their attitude and the attitude of Jesus that they must come over to. An attitude of humility, an attitude of service. Jesus was great in the kingdom, and his greatness lied in this fact, that he sought only the glory of the Father. That he sought only the glory of the Father, and in doing that, he received the kingdom that had been prepared for him before the foundations of the earth, that had been given to him as a gift and promised to him. And here's the significant point. The path to greatness in the kingdom is the willingness to suffer and living a life that is totally directed to the glory of God alone, that seeks only His glory. You want to be great in the kingdom? Yield your life completely to the will of the Father in love and obedience to Christ. That's what it looks like. We don't have time to go there. But Philippians 1, Paul said, "What he wants only one thing, that Christ be exalted in his body, whether by life or by death. For him to live is Christ and to die is gain. I pray that is your desire and that it is mine. Let's pray. Father, there is so much to think about in these few simple verses. What a glorious reality is your triune glory and love the eternal Father, the eternal Son, and eternal Spirit. Joyful in yourself. Bringing pleasure to yourself and glory to yourself as you redeem a people through the Son. You are Lord Jesus coming in obedience to the Father to purchase this people at the cost of your death. Your suffering, the ridicule, the mocking, the beating, the slapping, the spits in the face, the plucking of the beard, the crown of thorns on your head, the nails in your feet and in your hands. What a display of divine love. What a display of your desire to glorify the Father in all things. And may we have that attitude who have trusted in your work on our behalf. Kill in us any selfish ambition and any self-seeking glory that remains in our hearts. And fill it in its place with a greater affection for your glory and for your honor in your kingdom. And if there's any here who do not know that struggle because they don't have affections for your glory, may you reveal that also to them and bring them to faith in Christ. And I pray these things in your magnificent and matchless name. Amen.